You can start by opening your Bibles. We're going to start over in Matthew 24. You can just jump on over there. Uh, last week, uh, I brought a message that some of you will remember. I was talking about offenses and uh, talking about, you know, don't be a baby. It's time to grow up. Uh, and I really, really believe that the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, led me to bring that message. And since having uh, brought it last week, the Lord has continued to speak to me about offense and you know, the, the fact that in the body of Christ it is a major issue that we need to address immediately. It's not something that we can put off. It's not something that we can ignore. But it is something that is a major uh, hindrance within the body of Christ. Uh, and it's a hindrance to what God wants to do in the earth in, this, in these last days, these final hours. Um, so I've been praying about, you know, how I would bring what I would bring and praying about, you know, exactly what the Lord would have me say. And, you know, really what it's coming down to is we as Christians need to do more dying so that we can love the way that we're supposed to love. So I asked you to go to Matthew 24. We're going to pick it up here in verse 1. Oops, I'm not in Matthew 24. I opened to the wrong place. Here we go. Matthew 24. We'll start in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the end of the world? And Jesus answered them saying, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So, we're just going to stop there. There's more, of course, to this passage, more to the context, but we're going to stop there for now. One of the things that, that is clear and that we understand and know is that when, it, when Jesus says here that uh, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many, Christ is going to come, these, these false prophets, these false teachers, they're not going to go to the world and say, I am the Christ. In the world, they don't want Christ. So they're not going to be able to deceive them so much as they are going to be able to come into the body of Christ and those who are not uh, attentive to these words will be deceived because these false Christs are coming into the body, okay, into the churches. It's Christians who are being deceived. But, you know, one of the things that I've read many times, and I'm sure you have too, is this verse 6, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. And I've always thought in terms of literal Actual wars, as in, you know, some of the rumors of wars that exist now is anything related to North Korea. I mean, it seems like we're uh, regularly, you know, every so many months we hear about them doing another nuclear missile test or something like that, or that they're, you know, making, they're blustering, you know, they're posturing and, and they're, they're, you know, making it clear that they want to start something with somebody at some point. And it's almost like whenever they stop being in the news, their pride is pricked and they got to do something to get back in the news. But there's rumors of wars. Or how about, you know, there's always a rumor about China invading Taiwan. 
there's rumors of wars happening. And so, you know, there's, there's sometimes fear maybe that may rise up in our hearts concerning wars and rumors of wars to come. But what I've never considered uh, and never thought about is wars and rumors of wars within the body of Christ. As in division within the body of Christ where we see Christians at war with Christians. And that we would hear of wars and then also hear of rumors of wars amongst Christians. Uh, this, this week, in fact, I think it was yesterday, I received an article. Uh, and I, some of the details were not... Uh, related in this article, but there's a church somewhere where basically there was an election held to select the elders. Now, we don't do things that way in this church, and we have a different, definitely a different mindset as far as church government and how it's established, and we understand in this church that a church government is not established through democracy. We don't vote for those things. However, in this church, that's how they do things, okay? The issue here is that There were people within this church, a faction of people who did not like the pastor and do not like the people chosen to be elders. And so they began to uh, disseminate uh, false information, propaganda, things that would cause the people within the church to not vote for these elders. You know, one of the things that they, they, you know, put out there, which was proven to be a lie, I guess, after the fact, was that these these elders, if they were to be elected, they were conspiring to, uh, I guess, I guess, essentially shut down the church, sell the building to Muslims so that the building could be con- converted into a mosque. So this is, this is stuff that was going on within the church because there was a faction of people who didn't like how things were going, who were offended with the pastor, who were offended with this, that, or the other thing, and now they're trying to produce and create division to, so that they can take control. And, you know, eventually, you know, of course, this this fell apart. Uh, you know, it was revealed that these elders weren't going to do these things. And a new election was held and these, these elders were elected to their positions and so forth. But now the, this faction has uh, initiated a lawsuit against the church because they're saying that the constitution of the church wasn't followed properly and on and on and on it goes. But here it is, there's a war within that church. It's not, not even just a rumor. It's now, you know, documented fact and it's, it's even in, you know, publications for people to read about. This is going on before the world for them to see. Isn't that amazing, right? So the wars are within the body of Christ. All because there's some, a group of people who've taken offense at how things are done and instead of saying to themselves, you know what? We can't handle this. We're going to take ourselves and go somewhere else. They choose instead to create a war. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then, if you have a judgment of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Basically saying, hey, even the least of the least Christians is more qualified to judge a matter within the body of Christ than to get someone in the world to do it. I speak to your shame. It is to shame a Christian who would do this. 
Is it so that there is not a wise person among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? And really this is what, you know, should be happening over in this church. Maybe there's a justifiable reason why these people are offended. There, there's no justification for what they're doing in terms of, you know, lying and creating uh, propaganda and creating division within the body so that they could somehow usurp control of this church. There's no justification for that. But maybe initially at the very outset of all things, there really was something that ought not to have been that they had ought against. The issue is they should have kept it within the body. They should have discussed it within the body. And at the end of it all, if they couldn't find a resolution, it would have been far better for them to say, oh, well, I'll suffer the wrong. I'll take it on the chin. Lord, what would you have me do? God would, you know, would he have them stay in that church or have them leave? I don't know. Obviously, they didn't do it the right way. And it's clear from scripture that they didn't. And it's clear that they must either choose to ignore the scriptures or somehow misinterpret them so that they're justified and doing things that we know is, is absolutely wrong. I mean, in the name of God, create lies. You can't justify that. It just can't be done. So, here we have a group of people so tremendously offended that they feel justified in behaving this way on a world stage before the unbelievers and basically uh, soiling their testimony, destroying their testimony. What would the world, I mean, the world has enough of conflict, they don't need to go to the body of Christ and get more of it. We're going to say, hey, we have the answer for you, his name is Jesus, and then they're going to look at a church like that and say, sure you do, I want no part of this. There's enough conflict in my life without me going to your church and being a part of that. So a couple weeks ago, of course, we attended the the conference in Tulsa, and uh, you know, the major takeaway for me, there were two things. Um, that were major takeaways, and it is this, that revival will require from us Christians a greater surrender of our will to the Father's will. And, uh, you know, of course we have Jesus in uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, how at the very end, just before he goes to the cross, he's he's in the garden, and, you know, the, the, the knowledge of what is about to happen to him, the physical horrendous things that are going to be done to him and then finally being put on the cross, on a physical level, those things alone enough to turn anyone away from the cross. But then also knowing that once he would bear the iniquity of all of humanity upon himself, that he would suffer spiritual death and then then go to hell. Make, pay the full penalty for sin. Knowing this, he's in the garden and, and, the, and the word says that he sweat blood. And it, you know, it really talks about just that, that suffering, that turmoil that he went through. And of course, the, the words that he spoke to the Father were, you know, hey, if you, if there's a way to turn this cup away from me, let it be so. If not, nevertheless, let your will be done, not mine. Jesus surrendering his will. And so of course, that's Jesus being our example. There needs to be a greater surrender of our will before God that before a revival will come. The other thing, though, that really stood out to me was that as believers, we need to be moving deeper and deeper into the love walk so that the love of God 
would permeate us and become the motive for everything that we do. I know that even in my own life, sometimes I do the right thing for the wrong reasons. I do the right thing because it's the right thing, but the motive behind it isn't always love. And the truth of the matter is that eventually when push comes to shove, people will come to know, hey, the motive for what you're doing, it isn't right. And it doesn't have, uh, it doesn't bear the fruit that it should at that point. So, here we are, we're coming into, uh, we believe our last days. We believe that maybe even in this generation, Christ will return. It could be. You know, uh, the promise, of course, is that Jesus will come back and he will find a bride without spot or blemish. And there's no reason why we shouldn't believe that we could be that bride in this generation. We shouldn't just pass it on to the next generation and say, well, we didn't make it. You guys, you're going to have to try to make it happen. Amen? Turn with me to John 13. In this, in this time, in this era, one of the things that's going to have to happen for us to see revival come is going to be a greater measure of us walking in the love of God with each other. And... In order for the love walk to permeate us, there's going to have to be a lot more, a lot more mortification that we go through. Amen. And of course, part of mortification is learning how to forgive one another. So, of course, Matthew, or, sorry, John 13. We're going to start here in verse four in a moment. But we know that uh, this is the final time the, that Jesus uh, had a meal with his disciples. And in verse 4 it says, He rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. So we see here very briefly, what did he do? Supper's over, everyone is eaten. Sorry, yep, he rose from supper. They're, they're eating at that moment. He has uh, gotten up, he's taken off his outer garments, to wash his, their feet, right? And of course, uh, let's read on verse 12 to 21. So after he had washed their feet and he had taken his garments, meaning he got, you know, put his garments back on and he was set down again, he said unto them, know you what I've done to you. You call me master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I speak not of all of you. I I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that... When it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. And what Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Okay, so again, what we have here is an amazing, like a living example, a living illustration a living teaching moment that Jesus is patterning for the disciples. They're at the table. 
in the midst of the feast, he rises, he removes his outer garment, he puts on a towel, he kneels before them and begins to wash their feet. And he tells them, of course, that this is an example. I'm, I'm doing this unto you as an example as to what you should do for one another. And, you know, if I'm your Lord and Master and I do this for you, you know, how much more important is it for you to do for others? Amen? And of course, all this is in the context of verse 21, where Jesus says, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Jesus is washing their feet, and we know that Judas is one of the people whose feet he washed. He washed the feet of the one that he knew was going to betray him. Even while he was doing so, Jesus already knew that he was the one who was going to betray him. And verse 21, it says that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Meaning, Jesus wasn't taking the fact that Judas was going to betray him as a just, oh well, this is part of the process of what must come. Somebody had to do it, and I guess it's going to be Judas. Jesus is troubled in spirit, and I don't believe for an instant that he was only troubled because he didn't want to be betrayed, but because he knew of the impact that it would have on Judas. He knew that it would, the harm it would do to Judas for him to do such a thing. And Jesus, of course, demonstrating love, washing their feet, washing Judas's feet. He's demonstrating love for Judas and he's troubled in spirit for what Judas is about to do. To be troubled means to be distressed, disquieted, agitated, had, having inward commotion. He was tremendously grieved by the betrayal and yet in the midst of that, kneels before them and washes their feet. Part of what caused him probably a lot of grief is the fact that this was a premeditated thing. Judas had many opportunities to change his mind along the path that he had chosen. This is something that is yet to come and yet he has planned it and planned it and planned it. So just imagine for a moment, I want you to stop and think. Think of a person in your life right now today that's so precious to you. Someone that you love you know, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be any loved one that you can think of, a nephew who's special to you, whatever. Just think about that, that, that person that you love so much. Now imagine that that person, who you love oh so very much, betrays you in a premeditated way. They, they plan it out, they scheme, they conspire with other people, and they betray you. Imagine the pain and the hurt that that would cause you. The grief that that would cause you. And see, sometimes for us in the body of Christ, we get offended with each other because we can't understand how somebody that we love so much could do such a horrible thing to us, whatever it might be. And sometimes it's not even such a tremendously great, horrible thing. It can be a smaller thing, but it can be something that we would not expect that person to do to us because they're supposed to be someone who loves me. How can they do this? Why would they do this? And it causes a great deal of hurt. And yet Jesus demonstrated tremendous love by kneeling before Judas and washing his feet. Amen? Of course, Jesus, he knew that Judas was the traitor and he did it anyways. If a stranger were to do to us something really awful, really evil, we'd be angry about it. You know, if some, you know, you're at the, the corner store and you're not paying attention and someone picks your pocket and they make off with your wallet. And you have your ID and your, your your credit cards are in there and they steal your identity and ah you'd be really angry. But imagine if it was someone you loved who did it. The difference is significance. 
Very significant. Let's drop down to verse 31. So Judas, of course, he's already left. He's gone to do what he's going to do. And verse 31, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this, by this love that you have for one another, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So, Jesus, again, okay, really significant is the fact that here you have Jesus teaching his disciples who are Jewish people. Jewish people grew up under the law, know the law, know the teachings of the law, knew uh, what the law taught in terms of how to deal with people, especially as it relates to offenses. And uh, I think it's Leviticus 19, where it talks about um, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And then there are other places in the old in the old covenant under the law where it talks about you know uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that you know there would be uh, like a repayment due if somebody were to do wrong to another person, and yet Jesus is saying, "I give you a new commandment, which is this, and that is that you would love each other as I have loved you." And he just finished demonstrating that love by kneeling before Judas and washing his feet. Okay, and this is of course something. That, you know, they did not understand at that time, but later on would come to understand and realize the significance of it. One of the things that maybe a lot of people don't realize is that it wasn't just Jesus who had to forgive Judas for the betrayal, but so did all the disciples. Could you imagine, you know, somebody does something, someone that you love, you're going to have ought against that person. And you're going to have to deal with that as well. And so there they were. Witnessing all this going on, all this stuff happening, and knowing after the fact that Jesus knew all along that Judas was the one, and yet he showed him love, they understood, okay, we need to love each other as he has loved us. How will the world witness this love? Well, in the case of this church where all this nonsense is going on, where lawsuits are initiated and, and uh, you know propaganda is put out there so that a, a vote could be throne and all the rest of it, the world will see love in terms of how the people respond to such egregious behavior. That's how they will see love. When the world witnesses a betrayal, a transgression, or a great evil, the love that responds to that has to be beyond what is naturally uh, humanly possible. It has to be the God kind of love. You know, I remember reading about somebody who um, somebody had murdered a person's child and the parent went to meet that person in prison to, to lead them to Christ. I mean, that's amazing. That they would so have so forgiven them that now their concern is for that person's eternal security, their eternal destination. I love you so much, I want you to know you're forgiven. Now let me tell you about Jesus because you're on a path of destruction. That's the love of God, Amen. So this illustration of washing the feet is so powerful. So here we have Jesus. Jesus who was in the beginning. Jesus who is God. 
Jesus who created everything that is. And there's nothing that was created that he didn't create. Jesus, the creator of everything, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to become a man, we understand that. But he also humbled himself in this situation at this final supper, at this last supper, by kneeling before them, okay? He removed his outer clothing. And we know that part of his outer clothing uh, must have been a really nice uh, robe because they didn't want it to, the, the, the people at the, the cross, they didn't want to destroy his clothing. They, they drew straws to see who would get to keep it. They didn't want to rip it to shreds and share it amongst each other. And so he removed his outer clothing, but then donned the attire of a servant. He humbled himself and then knelt before each one of them and then went and soiled his hands, his own hands, to wash their feet. Because their feet were filthy. Their feet were filthy with all the junk and all the garbage and all the dung that's in the streets and all the rest. And he knelt before them and washed their feet. And of course, if you're going to wash something dirty, your hands are going to get dirty. Jesus got himself dirty to reveal how much he loved them. Amen? And he had just done it to the one he knew would betray him. They were witnesses to that level of love. So turn with me now. We're going to go to Matthew 18. We're just going to start here at verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone be hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of the offenses, because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense come. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off and cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into everlasting fire. If your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. So, of course, you know, we touched on this last week. We looked at it. We know that offenses are going to happen. Jesus says, woe to the world because of offenses, for it needs be that they happen. They're going to happen. And he's addressing two two people here. One is the person who causes the offense, the offender, and the person who is offended, the offendee. And he says, you know, hey, it would be better for the offender that a millstone be cast, put around their neck, and they'd be cast into the sea and drowned. Meaning what? It'd be better that they would die before causing an offense. And why is that so significant? Is because if we read on, we see that the issue for the offendee when they're offended is it can produce in them a, a situation where they, they become so offended with a person that it separates them from God. Why does it separate them from God? Well, we understand that when we hold unforgiveness, God says in the Word that if you won't forgive, neither will I forgive you. The issue that I believe God has with unforgiveness is that it's so contradicts who He is and who He has made us to be in Him. God, before we ever 
even thought about him and considered him, sent Jesus while we were still sinners to die for us and bear the penalty of our sins, to forgive us of our sins, that we might have relationship with him. He loved us so much he did that. That's why it's so important that we have, we forgive those who are around us, who offend us, who, who sin and trespass against us. It's because it's who we've been made to be. But when we choose to hold on to unforgiveness and to offense, we deny who he is and we deny who he's made us to be. So it would be better for an offender to die than to cause an offense because an offense could lead a person, a person who's received Christ, to eventually deny Christ. And of course we see, you know, Jesus goes on, he says it would be better for an offended person, you know, to, to get rid of that thing, to mortify that thing so that it wouldn't produce that death in them, okay? And so mortification basically is referencing uh, putting away and choosing to put away in us that thing that's producing an offense. Okay, we're going to get to, we're going to describe that a little bit better in a moment. Okay, so uh, how to deal with an offense. So let's say an offense, let's redefine that again. I actually wrote it down. Okay, what is an offense? An offense is an annoyance or resentment brought about by a perceived insult or uh, annoyance or resentment brought about by someone else's disregard for our standards or our principles. So it could be, you know, a perceived insult. It could be somebody did something and we think it was an insult. We're offended. Or it could be, you know, hey, I think this is important and you're disregarding this standard, this this situation that uh, that uh, you're involved in, and that produces an offense. Sometimes an offense is a legitimate thing. So uh, I could witness a Christian in the body, in this church, let's say, I could witness somebody go and strike someone else in anger. That's wrong. And I could take offense to that action. I'm offended that you went and struck this other person. It's a legitimate thing. It's wrong to go and violently strike other people. But we're instructed not to take offense. And so what we need to do is mortify that thing in us that becomes offended. Okay, And the reason we want to mortify ourselves is because it's hard to be offended if you're dead. So I remember hearing in a message once a teaching where it basically was about judgments and things like that. But in this, this sermon, the preacher was going on about how you know, if you're a dead person... You can't be offended. And he gave us an illustration, a dead man in a casket. He's, you know, at the funeral. And so, you know, people walk up to the casket to say their final goodbyes. And in the casket, the man, they put a wig on him, a blonde wig, and they put red lipstick on his lips, and they put him in a beautiful red dress. The dead man in the casket doesn't sit up and say, Hey, why did you dress me like this? What's going on? The dead man is not offended at the way he was dressed because he's dead. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him. He's not even there. His spirit is gone, so to speak. So a dead person, one who has been mortified, one who has mortified themselves, can't take offense. And the thing about mortification is that no one else can do it for us. As individuals, it's on us to to pursue that, to walk with the Lord, to mortify this in us. So, 
We have to choose it with ourselves. And it begins with the choice to let go of the offense, even if sometimes we don't really mean it. So let's say, you know, uh, oh Lord, you know, Ralph has done me wrong. Ralph came to church and, you know, we're supposed to be friends, but he didn't even talk to me, didn't even wave hello, and he left without even, you know, saying goodbye. What's going on? I'm offended with Ralph. But Lord, I'm choosing to let it go, even if right now I don't really mean it, I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're going to work in me to help me so that I really mean it, right? So mortification begins with that choice to want to walk and do things God's way. And this is where the four pillars come in, right? We've learned about the four pillars, but particularly tongues and fasting. We know that tongues, praying in tongues, is the mortification gift, or sorry, the edification gift. And part of edification is mortification, When we pray in the Spirit and we choose to do so hour after hour after hour after hour, Holy Spirit is working in us to edify us and to produce a mortification in us. That mortification essentially is this. As we pray in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, Holy Spirit begins to minister the truth to us about different situations and circumstances and eventually delivers us to the place of acknowledging and recognizing, oh, wait a minute, I'm holding Ralph... Uh, in unforgiveness, I ho- I'm holding an offense against him and I ought not do this. This is wrong. I acknowledge this. Lord, I repent of this and I ask your forgiveness and Lord, I forgive Ralph. That's part of mortification. It, it's working that, that, that dying in us to who we think we are. Amen? Of course, the second one that's particularly important in all this is fasting. Fasting is teaching our flesh Who's boss? And Jamie just preached a message about fasting on Sunday evening, so we don't have to go into all that again. But essentially, when we fast, we're establishing the uh, the ascendancy of the Spirit, our, our new man, over the dead flesh. Amen? And of course, we want to spend time in the Word for the washing of the Word. And worship is particularly good because if we have a lot of, mo- of emotions associated with the offense, and we're really upset and really angry, and we're having a really hard time forgiving someone and releasing that offense, worship will bring us over those emotions, wash those emotions away with the presence of God. I remember, uh, this will be over 20 years ago, uh, Jamie and I, when we were attending church over way back when in Elmer, Quebec, uh, we had a Bible study in our house. And uh, every... There were multiple Bible studies at this church, and we were all teaching the same material. And so if we were teaching on forgiveness, then every other Bible study was teaching on forgiveness that night. We all had the same material. So this particular night, teaching on forgiveness, and there was an older woman, uh, part of our Bible study, and uh, she had been married multiple times and divorced multiple times. And so we're talking about forgiveness and the need to forgive and the importance of forgiveness. And she interrupts the teaching to say, you have no idea what you're talking about. If you knew what my husbands did to me, you would not be telling me I need to forgive anybody. <laughs> she was full of anger. She was full of hurt. She was full of resentment and bitterness. And the very concept of forgiving these men who had done her evil, it was a concept she couldn't even begin to accept. She almost walked out of the room. <laughs> I'll tell you what though, eventually over the course of of maybe a year or so of her just pushing into the Lord, she came to a place of total freedom and forgiving those people. So, okay, the the first step to dealing with offense is to not get offended, to mortify that part of us that can be offended. 
So that, and, and I'll tell you, a lot of times, you know, I can be doing great. You know, people could say or do things and I, I just brush it off. It's not a big deal. But then maybe I'm having a bad day and it doesn't matter what you say. That's the worst thing you could have said. I remember this one time when I was working uh, in the government. Again, this is many years ago. Uh, I used to have a different wedding band. I lost it, unfortunately. It was white gold. And uh, I liked it. I chose it on purpose. I liked white gold over yellow gold. And so I chose this ring. And I, I happened to be at the reception desk uh, where I worked. And somebody who had come in to visit one of my colleagues, she, you know, I'm not even paying attention to her. I'm writing something down for the administrative clerk. And all of a sudden she says, hey, you. I look up and she says, is that your wedding band? I said, oh, yeah, it is. She says, it looks cheap. <laughs> That's what she said to me. And uh, it caught me off guard. And all I said was, oh, okay, well, thank you. And I walked away. It didn't, it was like water off a duck's back. Did not affect me at all. But I, the, the, the whole interaction happened in front of the clerk who followed me and said, why didn't you tear into her? Like, she's so rude. It hadn't even occurred to me. There was nothing there for me to be offended. I don't care if she doesn't like my ring. She's a total, in fact, even if she wasn't a stranger, I chose it for me. I'm the one wearing it. Amen? So that part of me was mortified enough that it didn't affect, had no effect on me whatsoever. So, of course, if we're already offended, if we haven't mortified that part of us, or there's more mortification that has to happen, and now we're offended, somebody has done ought, what must we do? Well, we have to do what Jesus taught in John chapter 13. We have to humble ourselves. See, the, one of the biggest hindrances to forgiving another person is our own pride. Our own pride will stand in the way of forgiving someone because there's a part of us that cannot conceive of letting someone get away with doing to us what they ought not do. Of course, when the shoe's on the other foot and we've done something to somebody else, we certainly want to be forgiven. Right? Well, you should forgive me. It's what the Bible says. But we have to humble ourselves. And we have to, you know, as Jesus did, take on the position of a servant, kneel before them, and wash their feet. And of course, it's not a literal thing. We've talked about that last week. That's not every time somebody does us wrong, we don't say, hey, listen, I'd like to wash your feet. Could you imagine a church where people were constantly washing each other's feet? In fact, somebody may come up to you and say, I'd like to wash your feet. And you're like, what did I do this time? You know, and it would be causing offense all the time. So, it's not talking about a literal washing of the feet, but having that attitude of, okay, They've sinned against me, they've offended me, they've wronged me, or even if they didn't wrong me, I've taken offense at something that they've done or said, I'm going to deal with this by washing their feet. How do we wash their feet? Well, we wash each other's feet by praying for each other, by standing in the gap for each other, for lifting each other up in prayer on a regular basis. Somebody has offended me, I'm angry with them, I, I'm, I'm dealing with unforgiveness towards them, the greatest thing I can do is to regularly pray for them. Every time I think of the offense, every time I think of the transgression, every time the enemy wants to bring it up to me in, in worship and whatever, I stop, Lord, I lift them up to you, I bless them, Lord, thank you for ministering your life to them in the way that only you can do, and on and on and on it goes. Hallelujah, that's how we wash their feet. And that's how we love them the way Jesus loved Judas. How often shall we forgive them? Of course, we could continue on here in uh, verse 21 and 22. Peter says, how often do we have to forgive someone who's wronged us? 
And, uh, you know, up to seven times maybe. Jesus responds 70 times seven. And it's, and it's really talking about just keep forgiving them. There's no end to that. You just keep forgiving them. So, forgiving, forgiving someone like that requires a lot of humility. And the thing is, sometimes it's not that they continuously sin against us or continuously transgress, you know, something that we, we, that we take and hold to heart. But sometimes it's the memory of it that keeps coming up. You know what? I remember what they did to me. Ah, Lord, the emotion of it is rising up again, but I, I forgive them and I bless them and I, I stand in the gap for them. I pray for them. You know, part of it sometimes, (laughs) you don't want to pray for them. You're so angry, but you want to do what God has told you to do. And you want to forgive because that's what the Lord commands us to do. We want to do it, but we don't feel it. So at first when we start, it's, you know, uh, Lord, I forgive them. I don't mean it, but I know, Lord, in time as I walk with you, I will mean it. I will come to that place of truly forgiving them from my heart. Lord, I'm choosing to humble myself, even though everything within me right now doesn't want to. Lord, I know what's truth. I love you and I want to walk in right relationship with you. And so I'm choosing to forgive this person. And then maybe along with that is you're going to start praying for them, but you don't really want to pray for them because this is the the time when God's going to answer that prayer. You could have prayed for a thousand people to get healed and for whatever reason they didn't get healed, but you're going to pray for this person because they hurt their foot and they get healed. It's like, that's right. I didn't even want him to get healed, right? But see, it's that working out of dealing with offense and mortifying that part of us that doesn't want to have any part of, of blessing a person who has wronged us or blessing a person that we're offended with. So one of the issues in the body of Christ when it comes to offense is that sometimes offense is not related to something that somebody has done to us or specifically to us or even something we could say is a specific sin. Okay? Offense sometimes is we observe how other people are, we observe their behavior, we don't like it. It offends us. I don't think they should behave this way. I don't like it. I don't like this person because of it. I'm offended. And we carry that in our hearts. And that kind of offense, of course, produces wars and rumors of wars. When you're really offended with a person, you may you know, may not be a person who talks about other people, but if you carry a bitterness and a resentment about someone else in your heart long enough, you're going to let something slip here and there every now and again. It's going to happen. And basically, when we do that, when we let something slip about another person to someone, we color that someone's perception of the person we're offended with. Now they see this person differently because of what we have said. So it's important for us to deal with offense. So I'm going to just give you an illustration here. I've created a little story about Ralph. Ralph is a fictitious character. And if there's any similarity to anyone you know, it's purely coincidental. What do those cop shows say in terms of, you know, if there's any similarity to a true crime or whatever, it's purely coincidental. So imagine there's a gentleman, a person named Ralph. I cannot stand Ralph. I can't stand to be around Ralph. He is the most awful person I know. I have noticed that a lot of people don't like Ralph. Similarly to me, they may have liked him at first, but when they got to know him, they eventually grew to dislike him very much. Ralph, his ways are so awful 
He is proud, arrogant, and self-centered. Everything is always all about him and how great he is. And his needs are always more important than anyone else's. His challenges are always greater. His losses are always worse. If somebody's sick, he's been sicker. It's always just about Ralph. So you're going to hear that the person who has a problem with Ralph is justifying why they have a problem with Ralph. I mean, have I said anything about Ralph that you would like him? Would you want to spend time around this Ralph? Unfortunately, I work with Ralph. I have to see him a lot. And he goes to my church. So I have to see him on my personal time too. Ralph has been at his at this office longer than anyone else, so he thinks that he has the authority and is the authority on every subject. He regularly disagrees with managers and tells everyone that the managers are wrong and that he would do things better and that things would be better if he was in charge. At church, it's the same thing. He would do things differently. That's not the way to do things. The pastor should listen to him. Maybe he should be the pastor. At work, Ralph eats stinky food, like reheated fish. He eats it at his desk, so that not only does the break room reek, but so does the whole office. We nicely asked Ralph if he could bring different food to the office, or eat in his car. But Ralph got very angry. He felt that any request that he compromised in any way was a personal insult to him. Ralph only cares about himself. When Ralph sets a meeting, he is very angry if anyone is a little bit late. But when others set a meeting, Ralph arrives whenever it is convenient for him. Or, just as the meeting is set to start, he suddenly needs to go do something else and we have to wait for him. Ralph regularly takes over meetings because he feels that he has something to teach everyone and that it is his responsibility and right as the oldest person in the room to do so. Ralph even shows up to meetings and for projects that he isn't even a part of because he feels that he should be at those meetings. And it doesn't take long before he takes over the meeting and makes the meeting about his project. I feel bad because I feel like I hate Ralph. I don't hate him, but I can't stand him. And I know that hate is incompatible with who I am in Christ. In fact, I pray a lot about Ralph and how I feel, but it doesn't take long before I am listing all the reasons why Ralph is the worst. I don't hate Ralph, but I feel like I hate Ralph. When people who don't know Ralph ask what he has done to me, I don't know what to say. He has never done anything to me. And that's part of the problem. I know we're supposed to forgive people, but how can I forgive him when he hasn't done anything to me? He's just not a nice person and I don't like him. Wait, that's okay, right? The Bible says I need to love Ralph, but it doesn't say anywhere that I need to like him. Right? I think I heard someone, some preacher say that once. So, here we have somebody who has a major offense with a gentleman named Ralph, and he's trying to contend with what he recognizes as very negative emotions that don't belong. Every time he thinks of Ralph, he has a lot of negative emotions that rise up within him, and he knows that these emotions and these things and that what he feels about Ralph is incompatible with being a Christian. He should not be thinking this way about Ralph, but he doesn't know how to deal with it. And that's what I believe a lot of Christians who deal with offense, they don't know how to deal with it because if you point blank them and say, well, what has this person done to you? Or even if they try to think for themselves, what has this person done to me that I should be so upset with them? They can't list something that they, oh, I need to forgive this person for such and such. 
There's been no specific thing done to them. But they've taken offense at what this person has done. They are annoyed or resentful about a perceived insult or annoyed and resentful about a, a disregard for standards and principles that they hold. And what's amazing is that the issue that this person has with Ralph started with one offense. One day Ralph did something that offended the individual and it wasn't dealt with properly. Instead of mortifying that part that was offended, they held on to that offense. And that became a breeding ground for basically producing a major issue with Ralph. So Ralph did one thing. It wasn't addressed God's way of doing uh, of dealing with offense. And then one day Ralph did something else. And maybe the something else wasn't even that big of a deal. It wouldn't have been an offensive. But because it was added on to the previous offense, it was layered on and layered on. Then more and more things were done. And, and maybe even things that aren't even really that offensive that were done. In fact, you know, eating stinky fish, nobody likes that. And everyone, you know, TV shows make fun of that. You know, you don't eat stinky fish at the office. I remember reading that one of the biggest complaints that people had on the uh, the train that goes through Toronto, there's like a, uh, what do they call Subway. Jeez, I couldn't remember the word subway. One of the biggest complaints on the subway in Toronto was that people were upset about what other people were eating on the train. They didn't like the smells. They were really offended. Really, what is that? That's nothing, right? But in the context of all the offenses, it became something really offensive. What a jerk. I I don't like this guy. And it became so offensive that now there's a major issue between this person and Ralph. And if anyone were to ask you, or ask this person, hey, you know, tell me a little bit about Ralph, they've got really nothing good to say. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with it? This is where we have to mortify that thing in us. There's so much division in the body of Christ and a lot of it is a bunch of offenses that we hold against each other and it's got to go. We have to start dealing with it the way Jesus has taught us to deal with it. And that is to humble ourselves and to kneel before them and wash their feet. Amen? The world must see us loving one another. In 1 Corinthians 6, 6, we read that you know, brother goes to law with brother and they do so before unbelievers. It would be better to suffer the wrong than to do that. As disciples of Christ, we need to mortify and mature to the point that we cannot be offended. That any little thing that anybody does just doesn't find any any place in us to affect us. Man, that's an ugly ring. It looks cheap. There's nothing in me that responds to that because it just isn't. There's just nothing there. But it has to be like that for everything. Oh, is that your wife? She's ugly. Could you imagine somebody said that to you? But the Christ in us would have to rise up to the point, oh well, I don't know what's going on with you today, but God bless you. I love you. Amen? We're not ready for revival if we don't grow in this area. How are we going to have revival when a whole bunch of new believers come into the body of Christ? New believers, they're not refined. They're not sanctified. They don't know how to speak Christianese. They don't know how to behave in the church. They're going to do things when they're not supposed to. 
What if, you know, during worship, they're loudly having a conversation because they don't know that they're not supposed to have a conversation during worship? Are we going to be all offended with them? And grumble and complain, I don't like this guy. So we have to mortify and mature to the point that we cannot be offended. So that it becomes increasingly difficult, if not impossible, that we be offended. When we are offended, we need to quickly take action and deal with our hearts. Repent for having held on to offense. Forgive the offender and then pray for them. Amen? And then, of course, we need to also grow to the point that we begin to recognize our own behavior is sometimes offensive to other people. Uh, You know, I like to tease and I like to have fun and I like to play. And over the course of let's say the last 20-some years, I've become aware on different occasions when I have said something that I thought was innocent and just, ha-ha, let's just laugh, and it wasn't received that way. And it actually hurt the person and caused an offense. And so I've really come to the point now where I've really tried to pull back from that, not because I think um, it's wrong to, to never play with each other, Right? We like to tease each other sometimes, but it, it has to be so careful. And so, I don't want to hurt people. That's not in my heart at all. I don't want to cause any offense to anybody. And so this is one of the areas where I've worked really hard to just kind of pull back because it has hurt people in the past. We have to grow to a point where we're aware of other people and we care about them. We love them enough. You know, if we know that a certain perfume is offensive to somebody, well, maybe we don't wear that when we come to church or when we're around them. It's not one of those things, well, too bad for them, they'll have to get over it. Amen? The only way we can love one another, the way Jesus demonstrated in John chapter 13, is for us to die to ourselves, is for us to mortify. We have to die to properly love. We'll close here. If you'll uh, stand with me, we'll close in prayer.